Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. District of Conservation is sponsored by Real Camo Girl, a lifestyle brand for women who love the great outdoors, spanning from hunting, fishing, foraging, archery, shooting sports, and the like. We are proud to have them as a sponsor, and you can learn more about them at www.realcamelgirl.com and follow them all across social media to learn more and get involved. Welcome back to another episode of District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman, and we took a little break last week to focus on some other things. I've been pretty busy with travel and client work, so I had to take a week off, but I'm regrouped, recharged, and ready to continue with interviews and public policy discussions. And what better way to start than with an interview with Bruce Taig and Brian Lynn from Sportsman's Alliance. We talked a lot about hunting legislation that's been happening across all 50 states, lots of bad pieces of legislation, but also some good pieces. And we talk about why hunters have to be involved in the political process better and more effectively. And I think you guys will enjoy that conversation. We also talked about the new interior secretary being confirmed, David Bernhardt. So you'll want to learn more about that as well. Check out our interview and let me know what you guys think. Thank you, Bruce and Brian, for joining District of Conservation today. Thanks for having us, Gabby. No problem. Talk a little bit about what you both do for Sportsman's Alliance to begin the, the interview. You want to go first, Brian? Sure. Uh, I'm Brian Lynn. I'm Vice President of Marketing and Communications for us. Um, pretty much anything you see out in the public, uh, goes through myself and my department, uh, social media, printed materials, just about anything, um, anything that's out there. We have a hand in our, uh, releases alerts that go out to states, uh, on the website, whatever, uh, goes through us and, uh, help form and craft our messaging and, uh, work with media partners such as yourself and everybody else. And I'm Bruce Tagg, I'm Vice President of Government Affairs here at the Alliance. We fight all anti-hunting, fishing, and trapping legislation in all 50 states, at the local level, the state level, and at the federal level. Uh, we do get involved in court cases as well. We're currently um, involved in grizzly bear issues and gray wolf issues and the state issue down in New Jersey where the self-proclaimed king governor down there (laughs) single-handedly banned black bear hunting on state land. So from the courts to the capitals, my department fights, and sometimes we we have good bills, believe it or not, that folks will put out there that we will advocate for and and, uh, get wins there as well. Yeah, it's very good that you guys have different roles at the organization um, because you guys are kind of not really small in operation, but you guys have a lot of different divisions for those who follow your work or are a little bit familiar with your, your work. But it's good that we have two different perspectives from the organization on to talk about what you guys do. 
And since there are so many hunting organizations out there, I think you guys feel overwhelmed by the number of groups out there. It's kind of confusing. How would you categorize Sportsman's Alliance and how it differentiates itself with, let's say, a Safari Club or a Boone and Crockett Club, groups like that? And then later on, you guys can talk about who you, some of your partners are too. But discuss a little bit about how you guys differentiate yourself from the others. Well, to start with, uh, our sole mission is to protect hunting, fishing, and trapping, specifically from the animal rights movement. Uh, we don't have a scorebook or trophy book. We don't have a critter we're doing habitat work for, um, whether that's elk or pheasants or whatever. We protect hunting, fishing, and trapping in the legislatures, the court systems, and at the ballot box. Our, our roots come from the, from the ballot box uh, when they tried to stop trapping in Ohio in 1977-78. Um, so that's where we kind of specialized and worked on, and we've grown from there. But we, we don't have that tangible item that so many other hunting organizations have. It's like, uh, we're like insurance kind of, where you're, you're buying insurance or joining an insurance group here is uh, what we do. Everything we do is an idea, but those ideas are law. And when that idea becomes a concrete item, hunters suffer. So we're trying to protect hunting in the realm of ideas, uh, it becomes a challenging marketing wise, as far as, you know, I don't have a pretty elk to hold up or a tangible project to show it's <laughs> if we're doing our job, right. We don't have something to show. We don't, we don't show that we lost something, you know, uh, being attacked left and right. Uh, Bruce later can talk about it, but this has been the craziest legislative session in memory. There's 500 bills out there that his group has been tracking, and most of those will never see the light of day because they're doing such a great job and working with all the people at the local level to stop these things. Um, so if we're doing our job and doing it, doing it well, people aren't even going to hear about this stuff. You know, so we're, we're really different, but we're protecting everybody and working with everybody. You know, you ask who our partners were. We work with anybody and everybody that we do, you know, we work with SCI, we work, work with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you know, we work with local trapping groups, uh, pretty much everybody. We, we work with anybody that will help us protect our heritage. Yeah. And just to add to that, Gabby, um, <clears throat> I think actually, Brian, I think this is one of your, um, one of your ideas, not necessarily an idea, but um, a lot of people do ask us, Gabby, who do you represent? What do you do? And as Brian said, we, we represent any hunting, fishing, or trapping organization. But again, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is you. But you know, any sportsman or women should 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 do three things. One is their passion. So if you're a if you're a turkey hunter, um, you want to join the Wild Turkey Federation. Second is your method. If you're if you're an archer, um, you want to join a group that you know that deals with with archery. Then the all encompassing. Everyone should be a member of the Sportsman's Alliance because we fight day in and day out, 365 days a year, to protect that turkey hunter, to protect that archer, to protect the rifle shooter, to protect the shooting sport. So um, 
as far as partners go, yeah, just what Brian said, we work with everyone and anyone uh, that has the same message, message, uh, mission to protect and preserve our heritage. Yeah, that seems pretty cohesive. That's kind of how I've understood uh, Sportsman's Alliance to be just in my reporting work because you guys cover like everything. I don't, I don't know anyone maybe except for sometimes the NRA when they do some hunting legislation, but you guys seem to be very vested in, in, in and obviously SEI too, because they do some legislation, but you guys seem to have a pulse on everything related to legislation. I don't know anyone who has a good pulse on it because it's hard to keep track. I can't keep track of 500 some odd different bills. And like you guys somehow, especially Bruce, you guys do that really well and keep people in, in the mix about that. And I want that to segue into the next question I have for you both. Uh, you guys had mentioned that there were 500 bills, making it really unprecedented how much of hunting legislation, especially anti-hunting legislation, there is. Uh, but talk a little bit more about that and why it's been so, uh, I would say, trafficked so much. Why there, Why is there this push to push, especially anti-hunting versus more pro-hunting legislation? And what do you anticipate, let's say, as most legislatures conclude, some are year-round, Uh, But what do you anticipate seeing uh, through the rest of the year and perhaps going into next year, uh, the types of bills that are being pushed? Sure. Um, The fact that you have almost all 50 legislatures in session now um, helps to make it unprecedented as far as the amount of bills uh, that are coming out. You are very well aware, I'm sure, as some of the state legislatures have changed uh, their demographics. Mm And for sportsmen and women in some states, it went uh, to the bad and not the good. Right now, there's really three trends that we've noticed and that we're actively uh, working on very hard. And and the trends are wildlife contests, particularly coyote contests. And the Humane Society and other animal rights groups uh, have made a national push on this. And right now we're working in seven states to either end these um, or just make them go away, make you know, make them just not even be able to get out of committee. And <clears throat> the biggest challenge we have is, is that a lot of them are cookie cutter language. In other words, my recollection is I believe New York and Oregon originally had the exact same, exact same language. It was almost as if the legislator that introduced it in New York and the legislator in Oregon met somewhere at a conference or something and decided to craft the legislation. That's not the case. This is cherry-picked language from Humane Society and other groups, and they're finding representatives in these states that are sympathetic to their cause, and they're putting this legislation up there. There are other states who have taken the cookie-cutter language and either carved stuff out or made it even broader. And what we found when these bills first started coming out was that they were so broadly written that it would affect field trials. And I know your listeners are very familiar with field trials with, with sporting dogs, so I, I won't bore everyone with the details on that. But it affected so much more than just the so-called coyote contest that is what they're publicly out there saying that they're trying to ban. Um, and so one of the things that we do here at Sportsman's Alliance is, is we have to really dig into the language to find out what it means, you know, different states have different definitions for stuff. So one state may say uh, taken, one state may say harvest. And so when you look at the 
the bill language, you then have to dig through other other code to find out in that state what that word actually means. So it's it's very laborious, um, but you know we we want to make sure that we're on top of everything everywhere, and you know covering all fifty states is tough to do. Um, second kind of issue that's out there that's really kind of uh, very noticeable is, is tethering issues. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, years ago, probably about 10 years ago, probably Brian, right. Really puppy mill legislation really started, uh, coming up, you know, they're really going after the commercial breeders, you know, the, like the places you see at a strip mall or something like that. <clears throat> and as the years have gone on, um, the animal rights groups have, have gotten, um, smarter, if you will, and have started, doing these tether laws. The challenge that <coughs> sportsmen and women have with these tether laws is, you know, some of the, some of the language in there, they want to require a working dog to have a 15 foot tether. Well, if you're, you got 10 beagles and you're out going somewhere to set up or get ready to go. And you're required to have a 15 foot tether on that. You're going to wind up with a, a, a yarn ball of beagles. Um, and that's very dangerous. They could strangle themselves. They could hurt themselves. So, you know, these types of, they're kind of knee-jerk reactions to something that happens and a legislator says, well, by God, I'm going to fix this. Or you've got the Humane Society or someone else someone else poking them. They don't, they don't look at the big picture and see that there are certain areas that this would affect detrimentally other than just kind of like a cookie-cutter fix or, we're trying to score a big headline. So these are other bills that we're working on <clears throat> that we really have to dig into and, and really analyze the language on those things. And then the third third issue that's um, that we're kind of jumping around all over the country is trapping. Um, you know as well as I do, and, and all of our folks know that trapping is the easiest thing to go after. Um, and so the Humane Society and these other animal rights groups are going into these states and uh, literally trying to ban all forms of trapping. You know, some states like California have already banned pretty much every trap there is. Uh, they, they're coming out um, with a new bill here that we're looking at. Um, in the language of the of the analysis that they did, they, they state right in there that the intent of the legislation is to ban all recreational and commercial commercial trapping in California. So again, from tethering to contests to trapping, it's it's just all over the place. But those are really the three major trends right now that we're working on. Um, and I know that Brian will jump in now, particularly with cougar issues. Um, so I'll throw it over to him quickly because he's really on top of that due to his geographic location in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, we see a lot of the same stuff every year, and it's more of a death by a thousand cuts, uh, take a little here, little there, circle down, circle back type approach. Uh, they can, and they don't go away. I mean, they do this every year. And when they fail, they just reintroduce another bill. It doesn't cost them anything to try to ban stuff legislatively. And that's what we usually see is they go after it legislatively when they fail a few times. They might go to the courts and try something or try a rules change within 
state fish and game agencies. Um, we're, we're watching some of that happening in Colorado right now in Oregon. Um, but uh, eventually, when we shut them down legislatively and uh, in the courts, eventually they go after the ballot box to get directly to the people. Um, and then it becomes a rural versus urban fight. And that's tough to win. Um, the cities mm. don't understand the repercussions of these ballot initiatives, and they don't have to live with the repercussions. Um, small towns, ranchers, farmers, hunters are the ones who have to live live with it. Um, so yeah, uh, mountain lions are a great a great example. I live in Washington State. You know, hounding was taken away by the Humane Society of the United States by a ballot initiative. Hounding and baiting bears were too. Trapping was. Um, and now we're having, we're seeing the fallout. I mean, there was somebody killed last summer by a mountain lion in here in Washington state and in Oregon who has similar issues. Uh, we are, we kill a lot of mountain lions. The state kills a lot of mountain lions. Foot hunters are killing more mountain lions, but it's not being done biologically soundly. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how we see things moving around and they just keep taking little by little. I mean, Wayne Paselli, the former CEO of Maine Society of the United States, said it. He said, we're going state by state, method by method, animal by animal, species by species, and we're going to end hunting in the United States. So, I mean, that's that's their goal. That's what they're going for. As far as, you know, the weighting of what those we see mm -hmm. as far as anti-hunting versus pro-hunting, we're, all, we're almost always on the defensive because it's open, right? That's the system we're set up in is this is open. You can do this, uh, and they just can restrict it. That's what they keep doing is restricting little by little, and every time they restrict it, they're moving the ball forward. They're taking something. They're winning. You know, it's hard for us to win more if something is open all the way. You know, if we have – you know, duck hunting or whatever, they, they can get it reduced in any way they win. You know, they, they only have to win once. We have to play defense and win every single time. That being said, uh, this team, along with our partners at National Shooting Sports Foundation and the NRA and Congressional Sportsmen and uh, Turkey Federation, run the Family Field Initiative, where we work put to lower the hurdles of getting involved in hunting, you know, hunter's ed and those things. We have apprentice licenses and mentored licenses in some states are called, uh, where you can get out and try hunting under the watchful eye of a, of a mentor that teaches you how to do it before you go through hunter's ed. You know, that, that allows somebody to get out and try it, whether that's an adult or a kid. That's an example of a pro hunting bill that we've been pushing. And almost 2.3 million apprentice licensed hunters have gone out and tried that that's a great recruitment tool so those are kind of the pro hunting things that we can do and open those things up sunday hunting is another issue you know getting more people into the field more often is what we need to be doing and that's the pro hunting side yeah i just i just wanted to jump in on that thanks for bringing that up right i was just going to say gabby you know there are some good things out there and, and as brian alluded to our families of field bills uh, we have two currently right now that we're working on, one in Illinois and one in South Carolina. These are <clears throat> these would, would strengthen their current apprentice laws that they have. Typically, 
or we've done some studies um, and typically what we like to see is a minimum three years. Three years is kind of the sweet spot where you get the highest retention rate of hunters then going on to fully take their hunter education course and becoming lifelong hunters. He also touched on the Sunday hunting bill. So recently there was a three bills passed in Maryland. Uh, this, these are obviously small little wins, but they're wins nonetheless. In Dorchester County, it was sent to the governor's desk to allow deer hunting uh, with bow, muzzleloader, and, and, and regular shotgun on private property in, in Dorchester County, Maryland. More importantly, the biggest Sunday hunting issue we have is Senate Bill 147 in Pennsylvania. And we've been working with Senator Laughlin out there. We got it passed out of the first committee. What it does is it repeals the blue law of no no Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania. There is some allowable hunting um, Sundays, and I believe it's like crow and maybe coyote or something like that. But for all intents and purposes, your big hunting deer, bear, uh, that's been banned for because of these blue laws. And so we, we have a, a bill that was passed out of the committee, and we're working on that. And what we want to do is we want to just remove that barrier and uh, give the authority to wildlife out there to make the decision on what Sundays uh, they want to open up. You know, give them the, the ability to do that. <clears throat> so those are those are the positive things we work on. And, and like Brian said, it's tough. There's so many more negative bills out there that a lot of the good stuff that, that gets done gets drowned out. And of course, the media, as you well know, uh, they're not going to you know, they're not going to write on the fact that uh, you know, we've opened up Sunday hunting in PA. Uh, they're, they're just not going to do that. So, um, you know, any, any of your listeners out there, particularly in PA, let your senators and reps know that you're for opening up Sunday hunting and giving them mm -hmm. power to the wildlife division out there to set those limits. Yeah, it's good that there there is mostly bad stuff, as we know, but there are some good pieces of legislation. And actually, speaking of some good news for sportsmen, I don't know if you guys are simultaneously following what's happening on social media, but uh, the in acting secretary for Interior, David Bernhardt, was just actually confirmed to his post <laughs> by the yeah, looks of it as of, uh, obviously, this will be pre-recorded before Tuesday, but as we're talking, uh, the Senate had confirmed him by a 56 to 40 40 something odd votes. So he thankfully cleared the threshold. So that's good news for hunters. Um, and that kind of segues into what I wanted to ask you guys about why hunters should care about, let's say what department of interior is doing. And then also, um, also what hunters, why they should be, excuse me, concerned about what happens in their state legislatures, electing the right people or urging them to support good pieces of legislation or reject bad pieces of legislation. But what are your thoughts, obviously, since we have this kind of update, uh, for interior leadership, what are your thoughts on that initially? And then uh, why do you think hunters should care about their state lawmakers and, and any other type of lawmaker that has a stance on hunting for or against it? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll go first and kick it back over to Brian. I know it's an old saying, but elections do have consequences. And as, as sportsmen and women, we have to be very careful um, when we get into the ballot box about who the individuals are running and what they believe and what they are going to do to pr protect and preserve our heritage. A, a perfect example would be Nevada uh, or uh, New Mexico. New Mexico over the years, I'd say probably over the last decade, has moved farther and farther away 
um, from from the American heritage that we all love and pursue and have a passion for. Their director out there, uh, right after the first of the year, signed an executive order banning coyote uh, contests on our any form of contest on uh, state uh, out there. They call it, um, uh, Brian helped guys at state school lands or, or state. Um, anyway, she single-handedly did that. Now you say, well, how could you stop that? She's not an elected official. Well, the governor that was elected appointed that person. So people have to put those connections together when they are going into the voting booths and really, really, particularly our folks really need to do some research on, on the people that are there. Um, and it's just so, so, so important because what happens is, and Brian touched on a little bit earlier is when they get control of the legislatures, they pack the important committees with people who honestly really have no idea what, what hunting or fishing and trapping is all about. They will. New York is New York's a good example, only in the fact that um, we're working on some bills there, and their environmental committee there. The chair is from Manhattan, so if any visitors out there don't know much about New York, Manhattan is where the ball drops. It's it's right in the middle of New York City, and this woman is the chair of, of the committee that is very important to our people, and so that's what they do. And, and, and they do that for a reason. They strategically do that so they can get crazy bills and get them passed out of committee and, and get them onto the floor. Um, the other thing, too, is the other side has millions and millions of dollars. And they pay lobbyists and firms. And, you know, our side doesn't have that doesn't have that kind of money. And we don't have the media on our side. So it's very important that our folks become educated on the people that are representing them at the local state federal level and it's very important to make sure our voices are heard yeah yeah and that. I, I mean con- go ahead sorry oh no no proceed of course go ahead brian i'm just gonna echo what he was saying that consequence or elections have consequences uh you know these are the people that are going to advance bills or kill them so if as hunters and anglers trappers shooters we're not electing people that are friendly to our cause and understand the repercussions of this stuff, uh, that idea and that uh, ideological stance that the anti-hunter and anti-gun people want to move through committees and houses and senates and governors are getting elected, then we're in trouble. Uh, you know, And that goes from the top down. Uh, you talked about federally. You know, Department of Interior will oftentimes set the tone of what's going to be, you know, at the top of their list or how they're going to proceed with, you know, cases and lawsuits. Uh, you know, we're, we're involved in three federal lawsuits mm-hmm. right now. And so that sets the tone and, you know, how they're going to go about it. And that trickles down and sets precedent and everything else. So if we're not being uh, proactive and watching ourselves, we're slitting our own throats. That is really true. Uh, but independent of, I guess, what most people feel, I think my audience tends to lean more conservative politically, but I have some people who are not 
who also tune in, but I think I haven't seen in my lifetime and I'm a little younger than you guys, but I follow politics fairly closely, uh, but I don't ever remember anything or seeing any, any semblance of, let's say a really pro sportsman agenda being advanced up until I would say this administration. Do you guys feel that same way? I know nothing is perfect and there are some shortcomings to anything, but I feel like they've done a lot with uh, appealing to hunters a bit more, uh, promoting shooting sports month during August and many other things to try to have a balanced approach to uh, access and things of that sort. But what, how do you guys feel as an organization that you can actually work with people in the federal government more easily, um, even if you don't necessarily agree with every agenda item they put out? Most of our work takes place at the state level. Um, you know, sure. they set the tones, uh, the, you know, the federal guys will set the tones on the big cases, endangered species type stuff, delistings, a lot of the refuge mm-hmm. land or whatever type stuff. But most, most wildlife management takes place at the state level. So 95% mm-hmm. of our work is placed at the individual state level because this is where managed species get managed. The only thing the federal government oversees is the Endangered Species Act and the Migratory Bird Act. Um, so there's not a lot there, um, except the big cases and delistings and stuff like that. Uh, as far as which administration does what, uh, there's definitely, uh, friendlier ones or not so friendly ones. Uh, you know, there's been lots of times, and I think it probably goes back to under Bush and stuff as far as opening up the national refuge, refuges across the country. We were part of that in 1997, 99. I can't remember which what it was, uh, Improvement Act, where hunting and fishing and trapping became priority uh, activities on national wildlife refuges. So, I mean, that goes back, you know, 20 plus years. So, yeah, that's there. That's very good to know. I think this is something what I'm going to ask you guys next about. Uh, I, Bruce, you and I talked about this when we were at OSU together uh, recently about how, uh, although hunting isn't a constitutional right, about 22 states have these right to hunt and fish amendments. I wanted to know what your organization's stances were on those and what future you think they have going forward. Are more states going to adopt them? I've never heard of any state retracting them or revoking them, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on that because I think people don't know that there is this codified thing in many state legislatures uh, and that they should be aware of it. Uh, if, if they were concerned or they felt that they couldn't pursue hunting, there is that protection there. So talk a little bit about these right to hunt and fish amendments. If you guys feel it. Yeah. So you are correct. There's a lot of these uh, over the last couple of years have, have been put on the ballot or depending on each state, how, how, how they get stuff uh, placed. The challenge with these is, is does the legislative language have enough teeth in it? And so, you may have a piece of legislation that says, you know, uh, X state is pro hunting, fishing, and trapping is part of our heritage, and pretty much that's it. There's the teeth that I'm talking about is the language should go even farther to state that should any one entity person try to diminish that right or take those rights away there would need to be a legislative process. Just just stating that, you know, that the state's pro-hunting, fishing, and trapping as part of our heritage, we're absolutely for that. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But the devil's in the details always, and we really need to make sure when we're 
putting these together that there's mm -hmm. that there's some real teeth in there. So um, absolutely, uh, you know, we're for these. Uh, if you're asking me, you know, what I would like to see, that's it. I really would like to see, you know, some some more sharper teeth in, in the language to really, really give us some protections <clears throat> when groups like the Humane Society come in and try to dismantle uh, the, the rights that we already have. So that's just my thought. Brian? Yeah, it, uh, you know, they, they sound great. Um, we, you kind of get into a two sides here is uh, they sound great. They might provide some legal, you know, teeth back to say, you know, hey, this is infringing on on something that we've passed here. But what the what animal rights movement does is they slowly take options away. They take methods away. Uh, Maine, 2014, when they tried to stop black bear hunting by ballot initiative, it took away the methods of pursuit. It took away bait, hounds, and trapping. You could still buy a bear tag and you st can still go bear hunting. You just can't use those three methods. Well, that's pretty mm -hmm. much, that was 95% of the state's bear harvest took place using the methods. You're not going to kill many bears by spot and stock in Maine, but you can still hunt them. So that's their argument is you can still hunt them. You just can't use these quote unquote unethical, unfair ways of doing it. So if you look at it as a state amendment or constitutional amendment to a state saying you have the right to hunt and fish, well, as they take these things away, rights is still there. So you're talking about degrees now, you know, and then if you go to the far end of the spectrum and you say, well, we have the right to hunt and fish, you can't take that away. Well, now you're undermining your state management and saying, what, we can't have duck season. We can have duck season in April or or what so it, it's really vague and as brute says this needs to be codified better that you know what, what exactly do these things mean and what's the legal repercussions and ramifications of these what would actually be better is if every state started changing ballot initiatives and requiring two-thirds majority or equal distribution from counties at the county level to pass a ballot initiative because then that starts giving the rural voters more control over these things you know again washington oregon california there's like two cities in every each of those states that make the laws it's the i-5 corridor this happens in every state and what we fight in every single ballot initiative it happens with the state legislatures you know that uh it's just the cities making the making the laws and moving forward. So if we had a way, especially at the ballot box, that evened it out, you know, two thirds majority or X number of counties having to pass a ballot, that would go probably much further in protecting us than kind of a vague amendment. Yeah, that's good to know um, because I think North Carolina was the most recent state to adopt it. And I know uh, it didn't have the perfect language, but it was interesting to see the dynamic of how much money was poured into defeating that effort. Last November, I think 1.2 million was poured in and thankfully it won overwhelmingly. Um, but it, it's an interesting clause within each state. I don't think your respective states have it. Here in Virginia, we do. We were the third or fourth or fifth state to adopt it. I don't think Ohio has it and uh, Washington state does not have it. <laughs> so you guys have to try to work to, <laughs> to ensure perhaps that 
that can happen. But uh, I think of the yeah, 50 states, only 22 have them. M- Montana does actually, interestingly enough. I, I would say most of the southern states, a lot of the uh, Midwestern states, even Vermont has it, which is interesting in its own right. Uh, but it, yeah, it is an interesting uh, con- constitutional provision. And I wonder if um, more will be deliberated and perhaps voted in by ballot measure going forward. Another interesting thing that people don't know about is that, and we, we talk about this in the industry often about harassment of hunters by anti-hunters, um, certain political interests, and, and the harassment is real. I think Keith Olbermann is a good example of when it got, goes awry, and I think people were able to police his speech better. Twitter actually uh, removed that tweet because it threatened the young hunter he was targeting in Mississippi. So obviously we know the threats are real. They're not exaggerated. But people don't know that within, I think, every state except California, I was, I'm was i reading through the Animal Legal and Historical Centers uh, at Michigan State University's paper, but I think every state except California, uh, even like Connecticut and those obscure states where you don't think people go hunting, uh, there are hunter harassment laws uh, that are currently in the books. And uh, what do you guys... Uh, what do you guys feel about uh, those types of provisions? Can those be enforceable more? Uh, what can hunters do if they are subjected to harassment while they're hunting by people? Because you guys have shared clips of uh, hunters being harassed by like crazy old ladies screaming about animal rights and things of that sort. Um, I think I saw that video not too long ago. But what are your thoughts on those anti-harassment laws and uh, what those types of protections look like if people were to seek those out? Yeah, no, that's uh... That's good. There's there's two different things happening, though, that you're talking about there. There's social media mm-hmm. and media, media right. if you want to call it reporting. Um, and I'm using air quotes there. Well, um, journalism mm-hmm. is practically dead nowadays. Um, but, yeah. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the social media outrage that drives so much of this, there's there's that the anti-harassment laws don't apply to that. Uh, not, not directly anyways. I mean, there's, you get all sorts of freedom of speech and press and all that issues to go in. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that's a tough one and it's tough to do. I mean, there, there's easy ways to not do it and that's to stay out of the spotlight. Not that a hunter should be ashamed or hide what they do or anything like that, but we do have people that stir up controversy sometimes in order to gain media exposure too. And that's not either. Um, but the anti-harassment mm-hmm. laws that are in every state are for the field. And the, actually, the Sportsman's Alliance wrote the foundational verbiage and those first laws that were then used to be to codify it in other states. So we've been involved in this for a long time, since the beginning. Um, but I think the video, video you're referring to is the, the guy did a great job. You know, if you're in the field and you're harassed, you know, know what your state's laws are. They're all, mm-hmm. they're all a little bit different. Um, document it the best you can. And with cell phone technology today, it's great. It's easy. Flick of the wrist and you can have your video camera on. Um, document the harassment. Document the person, what they look like, license plates, whatever. And, uh, yeah, contact your authorities and then pursue it. You know, don't don't just stop if once they make contact, pursue it, push it, you know, and uh, and hold those people accountable. It's the only way if, if they aren't being held accountable, they're going to keep doing it. So hold them accountable and push it. Yeah, just to add on to that, 
you know, with t- in today's day and age, with with social media and phones, I can take video and stuff. The antis are trained to go get that five seconds of fame because they want to make it go viral because they can't beat us on the science, right? They can't, and so they have to show somehow or try to convince others that sportsmen and women are, you know, these wacko people who just want to go kill stuff. And um, because the science doesn't back their argument, that's why we have wildlife officials in all the states and biologists and departments to set bag limits and monitor the health of of the species and habitats. So, um, you know, getting to what Brian said is you you just got to be calm and call the authorities and take the information they have because they want that, you know, two second little video or, or audio of, of you doing or saying something um, that's going to make them famous. And so it's very important um, that our folks understand that that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, very much so, uh, especially with, and this is probably the second to last question I have for the interview, but it, it's a good uh, bridge to, to, to go to for the next topic. But especially because they want to lump hunters with poachers. But I think a lot of people were circulating that story of those really abominable father-son hunters, or excuse me, poachers in Alaska and lumping them in with hunters. So what do you say to media or entertainment or those in, uh, I don't know, pop culture type positions? Uh, What are your thoughts on them trying to lump in law-abiding hunters with numbskull poachers? Because that's still a problem, even though we, I think I try my best to explain to it. There are a few others in media who do too. You guys, the wildlife biologists and many other experts and people who work in the field. But but it's still not coming across to a lot of people. But what do you think can be done to ensure that we're not lumped in or hunters are not lumped in with these abominable poachers going forward? That's tough, right? Like uh, we live in a soundbite society. People don't understand the difference between hunting and poaching. Uh, mm-hmm. that's tough. And, and that falls back on the responsibility of the media and how you hold them accountable is tough. Uh, they're going to put something out and the way news cycles work is they don't really care. You know, it's going to drive page views. It's going to drive clicks. If they don't understand the difference between a semi-automatic rifle and a machine gun, they don't care. Use it. Right. Right. Uh, same thing with <laughs> no. poaching. They seemingly don't care you know it's drive page views drive subscriptions and the news cycle keeps moving and there's the next great thing to go after um so holding them accountable is tough and that's kind of where it falls back on sportsmen to be our own best defense and educate the non-hunter on the difference between poaching and hunting and that these guys aren't accepted and aren't hunters, you know, that we, we condemn these actions and then go back to what our money actually does. You know, the Pittman Robertson dollars, Johnson Dingle act, all those things of money that's being conservation. And here is what hunting does for conservation. Here's, you know, almost $3 billion a year in excise taxes and tags and fees goes into conservation, wildlife habitat management. And then move from from these people that are bad and educate them on what they what good we do do. 
It's semantics too, right, Brian? So they're calling these guys poachers. They're actually just criminals, you know. Uh, you know, poachers. Most people, I, I I think, most people, when you say the word poacher, they think about what mm-hmm. happens over in Africa, right? And um, you know, and and so that's the you know illegal um, harvesting of an animal, either out of season or an mm-hmm. animal that you're not supposed to do that. You know, it's it's it, 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 again, it's the semantics. They put it out there because they know that the word poaching is 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 tied to rightfully or wrongfully so tied to hunting. So that's how they bridge that gap. Those two idiots are just criminals. I mean, I mean, they were just, they're just criminals. It's, it's no different than, you know, the, the millions of safe drivers are on the mm-hmm. road and then there's the one that gets in the car drunk. They're a criminal, but are all drivers that person? No, but you know, all you, myself, Brian and our people, we know that, but you're fighting, you know, you're, you're fighting the media, that has the same agenda. So um, it's, it's tough, very tough. I wonder if, I don't know how valuable it is to invite them to the field, obviously not to do kill shots or to do anything except maybe to shadow. And I don't know if it's worthwhile, like what we do in the gun industry, getting them to come to the range to see that everything is done in a safe and respectable manner. I don't know if there is an interest. I know a few reporters have gone out into the field uh, I think New York Times, they wrote a piece on some local wild game chef here in Virginia, and they shadowed him and his girlfriend. And I think they went to a field program hunt in Georgia and a few other places. But is it worthwhile to invite them to? I mean, as long as they're trust trustworthy, you don't want to invite a rabid like journalist who's going to butcher a story, no pun intended there. But is it worthwhile to invite them into the field? I feel like perhaps some would be open-minded, and then they'll see like there's a huge distinction between law-abiding acts, and then obviously the criminal wrongdoing that they like to hype up and and paint more vividly out there in the media. So do you, do you guys recommend that to people who want to perhaps bring someone who's suitable in the middle or those who may be anti-hunting? Not necessarily the rabid animal rights activists because a lot of them, unfortunately, are not redeemable, but there may be some who may be open-minded, kind of like that guy we had at our panel discussion too, Bruce. <laughs> but, but what are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, me, absolutely. I mean, it's about education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, that's what it comes down to is educating the non hunter. Um, whether it's a journalist or a soccer mom, you know, we, we need to educate these people and do it in the proper manner. Like you said, you don't want to bring somebody who already has an agenda who mm-hmm. is going to alter the story and paint it however they want to portray it. But somebody that's, unbiased or curious or is actually a journalist nowadays and can go in and do a balanced story absolutely um getting non-hunters out there is key i mean showing them the restrictions the times you know that this isn't whether it's duck hunting or using hounds or bait or whatever that these aren't you know slam dunk hunts these isn't we aren't going out there just killing everything, um, showing them what it is, what it takes, how much time it is, the investment, uh, and then the good that comes from that, whether that's keeping populations in check with your habitat or whether that's the investment in conservation for the future. Those are the messages and stories we need to get out there and need to have to counterbalance the cease of the lions or whatever else comes up next. Uh, yeah, it's, it's education and showing them 
and there is no better way than doing it. Uh, we have a long story to tell. And I'll, that's one thing we like about podcasts is we can get into what we do and get into some of the deeper issues because what we do and what we do as hunters is not a soundbite. We live in a soundbite society, a headline society. We can't tell our story of conservation mm-hmm. and management, wildlife management, in a headline. They can, they can synopsize outrage and you know pull on the Disney strings very quickly, very easily. Um, we we can't do that. Mm-hmm. We have yet it's a longer, harder story to tell, and it sometimes isn't sexy. It's legal. It's funding. It's all these other things that even sportsmen sometimes don't understand. So educating our audiences, edic- educating the non-hunter, and hopefully getting a fair shake in the media are all big keys. Oh, yeah. And that can be a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, if I can add one more thing. just uh, By all means. Touching on what Brian said, you know, education is key. Um, and most folks don't understand that sportsmen and women are actually um, volunteering and spending our own money uh, that goes into the system to help the state manage the wildlife in, in that particular state. Mm-hmm. And I had, a com- you and I talked about this. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who not really sure where they stand. And I just, I, I asked them the simple question. I said, if, 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 if we go away and we don't help the state manage the population, I said, how are they going to manage it? Well, they'll have to hire people or do it themselves. Right. So if, if X state harvests a uh, hundred thousand white tailed deer a year, um, that's what the scientists say needs to be done to keep everything healthy, habitat good, the entire system, and they take away everyone's right to help them. Who then is going to harvest those 100,000 animals? The taxpayers are going to have to pay the state department to either hire people to come in and do it, or they're going to have to hire their own people to go out and do it. And, and so again, that's part of the education process. The fact of some uh, an animal loving person who just doesn't want to see the death of any animal, okay, you know, you're not going to change their mind. But but folks out there that don't understand the role we play, um, I think those are good targets too to explain to them, you know, Unfortunately, everything's an economic issue as well these days anymore, particularly when you're talking with governments and how they spend money. So, uh, you know, Brian is 100% right. It's education. And, and I'm open to talk to anyone. I, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think more conversation is better than less. And we, I think hunters and anglers and other shooting sports enthusiasts are open-minded. It seems, unfortunately, more slanted that the other side isn't. So much just in my experience working in politics, that's just how I feel. Like I will sit down with anyone, anywhere, anytime, as long as they're respectful. But uh, they need to be less stubborn and want to sit down with us, I think, (laughs) to actually work out some solutions. Because I think a lot of things could be fixed in terms of animal welfare and promoting conservation. But many people don't want to have that conversation, unfortunately. They want to be in their little enclaves and uh, try to litigate hunters and anglers out of existence, unfortunately. So. That's one of the challenges we have. 
Do you guys have any final thoughts you want to add before we conclude the interview and uh, make a pitch as to where people can support you guys, join, learn more about Sportsman's Alliance, but what is your pitch and, and where can people connect with you guys? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. First no, uh, we need all the help we can get. I mean, this comes down to lobbying and lawyers at the end of the day, and that takes support. It takes people stepping up and contacting their legislators telling them what they do and don't want to have happen in their state and at their at the local level. Uh, it, and honestly, it takes funding. Uh, lawyers aren't cheap and ballot initiatives are not cheap. Uh, your average ballot initiative to, to fight is going to be two to five million dollars, you know. So we need support. We need voices. Uh, sharing the right message and working together, standing up for all types of methods, even if you don't participate, uh, pounding and baiting, you know, trapping, mm -hmm. even some sportsmen don't like it, you know, for whatever reason, the animal rights movement does not want to stop just one method of hunting. They want to stop all hunting and they're going to do it piecemeal. And as soon as they take trapping baiting hounding mm -hmm. they're coming after bow hunting they're coming after muzzle loaders they're going to take anything and everything they can so we need to start sticking together and being active and going after this um as far as connecting with us all over the place our website is sportsmens m-e-n-s sportsmensalliance.org we're also on facebook twitter instagram uh, just look up Sportsman's Alliance and you should be able to find that. Um, yeah, send us a message, send us email, anything you need. Yep, and, and the only thing I'll add, Gabby, is I really encourage everyone to check us out, like Brian said, whether at sportsmansalliance.org or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That way they'll be able to see, you know, they won't get inundated with the fire hose of information like Brian and I just talked with you about. They could take their time. They can see all the legislation we're working on in each of the states. They can see the other programs we have, Families of Field, our Learn to Hunt programs. Uh, they can take their time. But I also, again, would encourage everyone to join. Again, if you think about your passion your and your method and what group is protecting all of that, that's the Sportsman's Alliance. So, and I thank you again for having us on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we were able to finally have a sit down because I think we had been talking about it for a few months. Then we officially connected. I, I met Brian at SHOT Show earlier this year and I was like, and then Sean left. So I'm like, okay, who do I have on? And then it was good that you guys were both able to make time today uh, for the recording. So I appreciate your thoughts and sounding off on what's happening because let me tell you, it is so overwhelming. I can't keep track of and I think other people, too, in all these different states are like, why is my state legislature voting on this? Why is this happening? So I think you guys made a really good case for why hunters have to be politically efficacious and concerned. Um, I mean, I'm just an odd animal. I'm a political animal, too, by nature. Uh, but I'm just unusual. And I think there are a few others there who just naturally incline to politics and want that to translate into hunting and fishing. But I think more hunters do have to be uh, prepared and arm themselves with facts and be prepared to learn how to lobby, not exchange of money, but to go to meet with their lawmakers because there are two types of lobbying that people have to be aware of <laughs> the good kind and the bad kind for the most part. Uh, but it is so important and you guys do a lot. And I think, 
the all encompassing nature that your group has is so important. And I, I hope more people will partner with you and I'll do my best to send people your way. And I think I have to join at some point in time. So I'll look into that as well, but I hope you guys do continue the good work and can provide any lifeline to me or to other people in media as to what is happening because it's also confusing. And I think you guys do a lot to take the weight off of all of our shoulders and don't get enough credit for your work. So I thank you guys for coming on and and sharing what you're up to, your unique backgrounds and the vital work you guys are doing. Yeah. Thank you, Gabby. Anytime. Thank you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode of district of conservation. Thanks again to Bruce and Brian for coming on to talk about their organization and the critical work they are doing. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Hit the subscribe button and download any previous episode. And this episode, of course, the more downloads we get, the higher we can rank on the outdoor podcast chart. So any help would be appreciated there. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss guest announcements and other happenings. And just connect with us. If you have any questions, send us your guest suggestions too, if you want. Thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you.